morning. Good morning. Uh, let us pray. Oh Lord, would your spirit here speak to each and every one of us? Would our hearts be laid bare? Laid bare to your word, which is able to penetrate both bone and marrow, piercing through the soul. Speak to us, Lord. Amen. The question that I have before us is, what is the good life? What is the good life? And many would consider the good life to be the happy life. The good life consists of happiness. And we see this even right in the Declaration of Independence that is penned by Thomas Jefferson. He says this, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the pursuit of happiness has also seeped into the popular culture. One great song that I really enjoy is a song by uh, William Farrell, which is Happy. Or even this movie here, The Pursuit of Happiness, starring Will Smith here. And do you know that Yale's most popular class ever is happiness? About 1,200 students wanted to take this class, 1,200 students. And the purpose of this course here is not only to learn what psychological research says about what makes us happy, but rather also to put those strategies into practice. How do we pursue happiness? How do we be happy? And I just recently found this, uh, wall, this New York Times article that tells us in terms of how to be happy. One of it is to find your happy place, to find your happy place. Some of us, our happy place would be in nature itself. So last night, our family went to take a walk in the nature preserve and to see the fields with a trillium and with violets, it just created joy in us. Now, some of you may want to move to another country to find to the happiest country in the world. And do you know what the country is? No, it's Finland. Finland has been the happiest country for the past four years. Others, you know, would be to find out how to be happy is to find meaningful relationships, meaningful relationships with friends, with family. Other strategies would be to find meaningful work. Now, a lot of this counsel is wise. It is helpful. Happiness along these axes are things which God has given everybody to enjoy. But the pursuit of happiness along these lines, even along the lines of meaningful work or meaningful relationships, they can be an idol when happiness is viewed as the ultimate good, when it's viewed as the supreme good, or when it is pursued for its own sake. Now, during this series itself, we have taken a look at several definitions of idolatry. And these are some of the definitions that uh, Pastor Tim Higgins had laid out here. In terms of an idol is anything in your life that is so central in your life, such that you can't have a meaningful life if you lose it. 
as happiness, be it the happiness of meaningful work or relationship so central in your life that if you should lose it, then you would cease to have a meaningful life or that your life would cease to have any value. Is it so central in your life? If it is, it borders on being an idol. Or the other one, an idol is something in creation that claims the place in my heart that only God should have. Is my pursuit of happiness so central that it displaces my pursuit of God? And if so, it borders on being an idol here. The pursuit of happiness can be an idol, but it need not be. It does not become an idol when we subsume our pursuit or when we subordinate our pursuit of happiness under the larger framework of finding happiness in the things of God. And in the Beatitudes that we're going to be taking a look at this morning, Jesus tells us where our happiness should be anchored. He tells us where to place our happiness, what should be the basis of our happiness. And he tells us that the good life, the life that God wants us to live, the life that will bring us true happiness, it is to be found in living the countercultural life of the kingdom of heaven. It is to be found in living the countercultural life of the kingdom of heaven. And so we're going to be taking a look at three questions today. Three questions in asking about what is the good life or the kingdom of heaven that Jesus talks about. So firstly, we ask this question, what is the good life? Next question is, how do we live the good life? And third, what makes the good life good? So those three questions here, right? What is the good life? How do we live the good life? And what makes the good life good? Now, just before going into the sermon itself here, I want to provide some context of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes introduce the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is from chapters Matthew chapter 5 to 7 here. Now the Beatitudes here, they are short, they are pithy statements. They are short, pithy statements. In fact, you know, each of these Beatitudes could be fit, fitted into a tweet. And most of these tweets are then later unpacked further in the Sermon on the Mount, which are Jesus' teachings on the way that believers should live. They are the set of ethics for the followers of Jesus. All right, so that is in terms of the setting of the Beatitudes here. Now, the passage that we're going to be taking a look at today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. Let me just read it for you now, all right? Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 to 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. 
rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, in these verses here, the structure of these verses are seen in that there are eight Beatitudes in verses 3 to 10. There are eight Beatitudes. And then in verses 11 to 12, it is just an expansion of the eight Beatitudes. It's an expansion because there's a shift from the third person to the second person, and it just focuses on the last Beatitude, which is blessed are those who are persecuted here. Now, within the eight Beatitudes itself, within the eight Beatitudes, we can see a perceptible structure here that you have it in terms of blessed are the poor. For example, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So it begins with a statement of blessedness. Area of the Beatitudes begin with a statement of blessedness. Then it takes a look in terms of the character of the person who is blessed. So in this case, it's the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit is defines the character of the person. And then it gives a reason for why they are blessed. It is that there's a certain promise of blessing. So each of the Beatitudes is, uh, can be broken down into three parts. The statement of blessedness, the character of the person that receives the blessings, and then the reason why they are blessed. And those three parts itself, they answer the three questions that has been set up forward in the beginning. So in terms of what is the good life, it is a blessed life. And how do we live the good life? It is by a certain character. And what makes this good life good is that there are the divine promises that God has given, that God has promised to these people. So we're going to be taking a look at each of these ideas here, all right, in succession, and then we will then end up with the big idea for today's sermon here. So let's begin with the question in terms of what is the good life. And the good life here is a blessed life here. But first, we should probably ask ourselves, what does it mean to be blessed? What does it mean to be blessed? Some would say it is to be happy. Some think that the word blessed means to be happy. So one translation, you know, the, the Good News Bible, the Good News Translation, they render Matthew 5, 3 as happy are those who know they are spiritually poor for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. So someone who is blessed is happy. But the flip side is not true because the one who is happy is not necessarily blessed. So I don't think that the word blessed can be equated with being happy, with being the emotion of being happy. The word blessed does not state that a person feels happy, but rather that they are in a happy state of affairs or they are in a happy situation. You know, perhaps something like good for you, congratulations to you, maybe awesome, you know, something that conveys some kind of the meaning of the word there. But who are we blessed by? The text here puts it that we are blessed by God. The context is that we are blessed by God. And the one who is blessed by God and the one who is blessed enjoys God's favor. He has God's approval. God honors him. God smiles at him. To be blessed by God is then to be approved by God, to be honored by him. 
And so a possible translation would be, God's favor shines on you. God shines his face on you. So that to be blessed is to have God's favor and God's approval. And to be blessed by God invariably should lead to happiness. To be blessed by God invariably should lead to happiness. That's why we see it in verse 11 and 12. All right? Verse 11 begins with the statement, blessed. And then verse 12 has the following imperative, rejoice and be glad. The relationship between these two verses suggests that being blessed and being glad come together. That rejoicing and being glad should be the result of being blessed by God. You should be happy because you are blessed by God. Now let me ask you a question here. If being blessed by God means to have God's approval, then it immediately raises the question whether we want to be blessed by God or whether we want to be blessed by someone else. Or another way, whose approval do you seek? Whose approval do you seek? Do you seek approval from your family, friends, colleagues, business acquaintances? Now, some psychologists will say that in order to maintain good self-esteem and to have good emotional health, you do not need to get approval from others. While that may be true at the human level, that cannot and must not be true at the divine level. For if that is true, it means that we put ourselves above God and we put our desires above God. In essence, we make ourselves God. But this then raises another question. How badly do you want God's blessing in your life? Do we make it a priority in our life to get God's approval? Will we be like Jacob who wrestle with God and say that I will not let go of you unless you bless me? Do we have that eagerness? There was a story some time ago about this kid here who got stuck in a claw machine trying to reach a toy, all right? He apparently wanted the toy so much that he climbed into a hole that big, you know, that, that hole where you actually go and pick up your toy. He climbed into that hole here in order to reach the toy. Now, when the fire department, well, they managed to get him out, and the boy eventually got his hands on his coveted prize, which was a stuffed football and some other toys here. But it just makes me wonder, it's our desire for God's blessing, like what this kid had. To be so eager that we try our best effort to obtain God's blessing. And so it raises, this, raises the question for us here. How badly do we want God's blessing? The good life that Jesus wants us to live, it is a blessed life. A life that is marked by God's approval. May that, may that be our heart's desire. Now we come to the second question here. The second question is, how do we live a life? How do we live this life? How do we live the good life? And it's lived by a certain character. We see this here in the Sermon on the Mount. It's blessed are those poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst 
for righteousness here. The blessedness is dependent on certain character traits. It's dependent on certain character traits. It's not that the, there are eight different kinds of people who are blessed, but that those who are blessed have these eight different character traits. Now, that's not explicit imperatives in the Beatitudes at all. There are no explicit imperatives that we are to exemplify these character traits. But the Beatitudes function as implicit imperatives. Since the peacemakers and the pure in heart are those who are blessed, then one cannot avoid the assumption that you should be a peacemaker and be pure in heart so that you too may receive a blessing from God. There are no explicit imperatives, but there are implicit imperatives here. So that if you desire the blessings of God, then you should be a peacemaker. Then you should be pure in heart. Now, the eight character traits here that we see in the eight Beatitudes, they can be divided into three groups. The vertical dimension, the horizontal dimension, and lastly, the one in persecution. So if you take a look at the vertical dimension here, and the vertical dimension exemplify a certain dependence on God here, a certain dependence on God, so that the poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty and depend on God for their spiritual needs. Those who mourn are those who mourn for their sin because they are acutely aware of their sin. Those who are meek are those who are gentle with others who do not demand their rights but are more concerned about their duty. And those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they eagerly deserve they eagerly desire to live the way that God requires. So the first four character, character traits demonstrate their dependence on God. The next three, the next three demonstrate their, how they rightly relate to others. The merciful are those who are compassionate towards others in distress. The pure in heart are those who are morally upright and who maintain integrity, not only before God, but also before others. And then the peacemakers, they are those who are not only having a peaceable disposition, but rather they are actively seeking to broker and to reconcile hostile groups. So that the next three character traits are those who relate rightly to God. And the last one is in terms of the, the ones who are persecuted here. Not because you're obnoxious, but rather because of your righteousness in your witness of Christ Jesus here. Now, when you take a look at these character traits, they are all countercultural. They're all very countercultural here, in that these traits are countercultural. They are not what the world typically considers to be generative of happiness or reasons to be blessed. And the reason why, you know, that instead here of being blessed, we will want to say that, let's say, uh, I guess it's this one here. Instead of being blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit, we will say that blessed are those who are confident. Instead of blessed are those who are mourned, we will want to say those who are happy are the ones who are blessed. Instead of blessed are the meek, we will say blessed are the ones who are cocky. 
Instead of those who are hunger and satisfied, hunger and thirsty as blessed, he would say those who are satisfied are blessed. Instead of those who are persecuted as being blessed, we would say those who are celebrated. Those who are feted, they are the ones who are blessed. But the reason why these character traits are countercultural is because they reflect our countercultural master. And as we maintain our countercultural witness, we look to Jesus, our master, for he perfectly exemplifies these character traits of the Beatitudes. So as we cultivate the characteristics of the Beatitudes, we are cultivating our likeness to Jesus. We are cultivating our likeness to Jesus. Now these character traits here, all of us here are to manifest these, all of these character traits. In that we here, Christians are to manifest all of these character traits. It's not like a buffet or a cafeteria style a la carte, you just choose what you want, you know. Meekness, okay, persecution, not so much. I don't like it, all right? You know, it's something like uh, when, I was, when I was bringing up Anna, and I was trying to teach her to appreciate all the food, right? I said, Anna, you have to eat up everything, but okay, I'll just let you have three items that, you, uh, that I don't have to force you to eat. And to this day, she doesn't like to eat mushrooms, she doesn't like to eat catfish, all right? But, you know, in terms of these character traits, they are not something that we can pick and choose. They are meant to be like a set menu, not an a la carte menu. Why do we want to have all of these character traits? Because we want our blessings to be full. We want our blessings to be complete here. The other thing too here is that all Christians, all Christians here are to manifest these character traits. There are not two groups of Christians, such as the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Well, they are for the spiritual Christians. While the rest of us, the social Christians, we can ignore them. No, the blessings of the Beatitudes, they are for all Christians. And all Christians must exemplify the character traits of the Beatitudes. So that here raises, how do we live the good life? How do we live the good life? And we live the good life by living a life that is marked by a certain character, a character that imitates that of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's come to our last one. In terms of it, what makes the good life good? What makes the good life good and is the divine promises? And I'm going to want to focus on two aspects of these divine promises here. And the first aspect of the divine promises here is that they concern life in the kingdom of God. So that if you take a look at the promise of the first and the last beatitude, you find that everything it concerns that it is, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These two blessings here form a bracket around the entire eight beatitudes. It forms a bracket around the entire eight Beatitudes, setting the framework for understanding the Beatitudes, namely that the Beatitudes is ultimately concerned with the kingdom of heaven. This is what life in the kingdom of heaven is like. Now, Matthew uses kingdom of heaven, Mark and Luke uses the kingdom of God, but the two are interchangeable. They are synonymous here. So the first aspect of the divine promises is that they concern life in the kingdom of heaven. 
the second aspect of the divine promises here is that there's both an already and not yet component. If you take a look at the tenses of the promises here, you see that there's both a present and future. So for example, for this is, and the eight beatitudes for this is, and the rest from the second all the way down, it's all in the future tense. But despite the tenses here, there is generally both a future and a present aspect of the blessings contained in these promises. We now experience the blessings of the kingdom of heaven partially, but we will experience the full blessings of the kingdom of heaven when Jesus returns. Now, I'm going to take a look and work through the explanation of these divine promises here. And for example, it begins here in the eight, the eight Beatitudes, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, meaning that they receive the benefits that come with being citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and that they receive spiritual life. For to enter into the kingdom of heaven is to enter life itself. Blessed are those who mourn for their sins, for they will be comforted, meaning that they will be comforted as they receive forgiveness of their sins. Blessed are those who are meek, for they will inherit the earth, not the physical plot of land, but they will inherit the new heavens and the new earth, and that they will enter the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus comes. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled, meaning that they will be empowered by God to live righteous lives. Blessed are those who are merciful, for they will receive mercy from God. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they will see God, meaning that they will be able to come before the presence of God in boldness. They will be able to come before the presence of God in boldness. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God, that God will declare them that you are my children, you are my covenant child, and blessed are the, those who are persecuted, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. Now when you take a look at the divine promises here, they are all spiritual blessings. The blessings of the Beatitudes are blessings within the kingdom of heaven. They are spiritual blessings. And the fact that they are spiritual blessings means that they are not as immediately tangible, they are not as immediately visible as physical blessings. But the fact that they are spiritual blessings also means that they are not subject to the vicissitudes or the uncertainties in the physical realm. They are certain, they are steadfast. And that's why a believer's true happiness and, our, and joy is not dependent on the ebb and flow of physical circumstances that we find ourselves in. Now, Jonathan Edwards, he preached a sermon on Christian happiness here, and this is what he says. The godly man is happy in whatever circumstance he is placed because of the spiritual privileges and advantages, joys and satisfactions, he actually enjoys well in this life. The godly man is happy in whatever circumstances. And the reason why he is happy in whatever circumstances is because the blessings that we receive are spiritual blessings. They are not damaged. They are not hindered by anything that happens in this physical realm. But this raises the question, what's 
so good about these spiritual blessings. Jesus says that I am blessed in the kingdom of heaven and that I have God's favor. But what's so good about it? Why don't I jump for joy over them? What good are spiritual blessings in the kingdom of heaven when you're struggling with difficult relationships? Or when your high school daughter or children might say, I know that Jesus loves me. I know that I'm a child of the Most High King, but what good is that when I have no friends to sit at lunch with? And Jesus' response is that it is very good. And you know, and I've told this many times before, that we live in two worlds at the same time. We have one foot in the spiritual world, the kingdom of heaven, and another foot in the physical world at the same time. But all too often, all too often, the riches that we have in the kingdom of heaven, the riches that we have in the spiritual world, do not impact us at all. And the reason why these blessings here do not impact us is because they are abstract concepts. We are so used to living in the physical world that the spiritual world is just an abstract concept. The blessings that we have as a result of the gospel is just an abstract concept. It is not as immediate, it is not as tangible as what we find in the physical world. They're like flimsy cobwebs. They get scattered by the slightest wind. Or like the flowers that you see on the tree that get blown away with the slightest wind. And I think that we have the same problem that infants have, that we lack object permanence when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. Object permanence is the understanding that objects continue to exist even when we don't see them. And that's why, you know, children like to play peekaboo. Peekaboo is a prime example of an object permanence test. Babies enjoy playing peekaboo because they haven't developed object permanence. So that when you cover your eyes and then open them, they suddenly think that you magically appear before them. All right, they think that you just magically appeared. And object permanence only starts developing in infants between four to seven months. How do babies develop object permanence in the physical world? By touching, by handling objects. How do we develop object permanence in the spiritual world? How do we develop object permanence in the spiritual world, the kingdom of heaven? By living in it, by listening to the voice of God in scripture, by praying that the Holy Spirit will apply the truths of scripture in our lives and will impress upon us the reality of the spiritual kingdom, by being a part of a community of like-minded brothers and sisters that can encourage one another about the reality of the kingdom, by living life in the kingdom of heaven, by living the good life according to the values of the kingdom of heaven. When the reality of the kingdom of heaven is strengthened, the reality of the divine promises and the spiritual blessings will also be correspondingly strengthened, allowing us to construe events that happen to us in this physical world so that we might even be like Paul, who is able to rejoice, who's able to be happy, even when he is 
in prison. So what makes the good life good? Because the good life is marked by divine promises. And these divine promises confirm life in the kingdom of heaven. And so what we've taken a look at, you know, we ask these three questions, right? What is the good life? It is a blessed life, a life that's blessed by God. And how do we live the good life? It is by a certain character, by manifesting all the character traits that is seen in the Beatitudes. And what makes the good life good? It is these divine promises that God has outlined for us. And this then brings us to the central idea here, that God and Jesus is encouraging us to embrace the good life that finds true happiness in God. Let us embrace the good life that finds true happiness in God. When our pursuit of happiness displaces our pursuit of holiness or our pursuit of God, our pursuit of happiness becomes an idol. For it makes the purpose of human life within man himself, within the person itself. Rather, our pursuit of happiness must be tied to the glory of God. And we see this most clearly in the Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Glorifying God and enjoying him are not two separate ideas that are meant to be, set, that are meant to be kept apart. It is not to glorify God and then to enjoy him forever later, but rather it's meant to come together we glorify God by enjoying him forever. We glorify God by being most satisfied in him. We glorify God when we delight in him, when we make him the basis of our joy, when we make him the basis of our happiness. God wants us to be happy, but it is to be happy in him. It is to be satisfied in him. It is to rejoice in him. You know, for many years, I've been praying that I would find joy and happiness in my work, in my teaching, in my ministry for God. But in the past several years, God has been leading me to pray that I would find joy and happiness, not in my work, not in my writing, not in my ministry, not even in my family or friends, but rather in him instead. In him instead. God wants us to embrace the good life that finds true happiness in him. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, I pray that you would burn that truth in our hearts, that we will learn to find our happiness to be anchored solely in you. You've called us to rejoice, but it is to rejoice in the Lord. Help us then, Lord, to make you the basis of our joy, to make you the basis of our happiness. Help us to subsume and to subordinate all the pursuits of our happiness under the pursuit of happiness in you. Amen.